Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man whose fireplace is also designed after a Russian film for some reason. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and I love I loved that movie so much that I wanted... <laughs> I, wanted I wanted their fireplace my, my for some fireplace. reason. It is. Listen, it's a it's a nice looking fireplace. I I was, I was really struck by that whole conversation, uh, because it's it's this big wide hearth. It's at waist level for some reason instead of on the floor. It is a seating structure in and of itself. It has the seating structure. I bet it is super comfortable. I mean, I've seen I've seen fireplaces like that because I watch a little bit too much home and garden television. Um, Yes. And, like, they always look great. Like, it's always like, well, yeah. My problem is is what I like about his that I don't like about most of the ones I see on Home and Garden Television is that his is not modernist by nature. It right, is, right, right. is a more traditional-looking hearth just designed in a way where you would, like, presumably, maybe that's just the way Russian hearths are designed. I don't know. Um, but, like, it, yeah, no, it, it actually, looked like it, a traditional fireplace, but, like, elevated rather than like some weird architectural monstrosity which is what you usually get in HDTV. Right, it makes interesting sense uh to have a hearth at stovetop level instead of ground level. Right. Uh because if you're actually using it as a hearth to cook. Right, right. Uh you can interact with what you're cooking. Yeah, you're not you're not like crouching on the floor up. all the time for some reason. Yeah. 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 So so I was I was intrigued by that aspect of it above anything yeah. actually. I just thought uh, the cubby hole where it's like, well, if I angle my butt, I'm I'm doing self regulated temperature control because my feetsies are cold. I turn my feet towards it, right. and if my my right, body right, gets right. cold, I turn my body towards it. It's like, and it, right. and it's nice thick stone between you and that. So like you're you're getting only radiated heat. You're not gonna like you're not actually gonna get cooked alive in there. Right. Um, as as weird as it is to have watched some rando. Uh, Russian movie and like, said, I need oh, I that. really love that fireplace. Yeah. I need that. Uh, I respect the decision. Yeah, it's no, a good fireplace. It is a good fireplace. I just think it's very funny to like imagine like maybe all of his like house decor is done based on <laughs> random movies he watched. Yes. Based on what I saw, um, maybe? Could be. Could be. Uh, well, he, he'd have to be watching a lot of... Uh, traditional scandinavian documentaries for I, a lot of that house. all of this <laughs> checks out mm, i see no no flaws in our plan our idea here Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon for a second. It's patreon.com slash lost in criterion over there for a dollar a month. You can help keep us going and get a bonus content. Yeah, you can. We do a non-criterion film over there and our supporters vote on what we're going to watch. Uh, usually I put together a list uh, that's always four films and then uh, Kazam, the, the children's the film starring Shaquille O'Neal. But if supporters want to suggest a list, I am always happy to take those lists. 
And usually, if we use your list and the timing works out, we'll invite that supporter on to the podcast to record with us and talk about the movie that they suggested. So we have assuming, a lot of fun over there. I guess assuming that the one they actually wanted to watch one or they liked right, all the films the they suggested, right, they right, liked right, all right, those. Right. I don't know. Right. Uh, if they wanted us to watch one specific film, but we <laughs> built a list around that yeah. film and it lost. Yeah. Maybe I they don't, don't want to talk happened anymore. yet. No, I, think, I, I think still think Stevens was the closest possibility there, right? Like, right, right, we, play, right, we right. played we with had, fire there, and we and we made it out alive. We did, but. we did have a fantastic episode with our friend Stephen Goldmeyer uh, covering Now You See Me, uh, a movie he absolutely loves but is generally panned by by other people. Uh, and I enjoyed it. I, did that. I, I mean, I, I've I, seen it enough times where I like, I like it. I 100% enjoy talking to steven about anything he's excited about right just just it's infectious so uh and that's not just limited to our to our movie episodes it's just it's very good uh but yeah um all of that is the one dollar tier and we watch a pretty wide range of movies not just now you see me we've watched uh movies <laughs> just, like uh, just now you see me every <laughs> yeah now you see every, me every month, month. once a yeah. month but we've watched we've watched things like uh dog day afternoon and uh uh the Americanization of Emily, uh, and Critters Two, and Aliens, and Ready Player One—just a, a pretty wide swath. Just like um, some good movies, some crap. It's really, yeah. But we try to keep things purposes. interesting over there, and and think of a a new a new list, which gets harder and harder every time I think of a list to think of a new one for the next week. So, well, I think I think I think you make it hard on yourself because we could recycle old ideas that like have like a while, like. That could serve a pedia is a gift that keeps on giving. Right, right. Really, we did, when you get down did, to it. We did one dedicated to Conservapedia's list of uh of worst liberal movies. Uh and we uh, we focused amazing. on children's movies and the list is the list is certainly amazing. The list is fifty percent uh, like, well, this movie clearly hates Reagan, so Right, right, right. It really is. It's so good. It might <laughs> Big yeah. Green. The big green. Blames Reaganomics for economic downturn, and that's one reason it's a bad movie. It's the it's, it's so a liberal politics. It's like well, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, it may encourage illegal immigration. Uh, uh, the is, whole that is that Whoever, one of the? Oh man, one. what the what an amazing website! Just really, yeah, top notch. The worst, the worst. Uh, but if you uh, if you do want to support us over there and get access to those episodes, like I said, it's just one dollar at patreoncom Criterion. A little above that, uh, five dollars. We uh, like to thank those people on air, just you know, folks who who can afford just it and want to show more. us a little more of a yeah. sport. Uh, so thank you so much to the affirmation Stephen Goldmeyer, who is a five dollars supporter right now, and also to Eric Coronado, who is uh, <laughs> a recent a recent bump back up to five dollars. Right. I he I have dollar for a while and right now he's just paying both, but uh, yeah, for some reason he is actually. <laughs> I think you said I'm fascinated by what just happened because I th- you definitely may have said aforementioned and I did. definitely meant to say aforementioned, but I think you said affirmationed, <laughs> which is pretty am- is a pretty amazing. I don't. Well, I, you know, I had also previously. I, feel I had like also we previously kind affirmed, of affirmed him, him so, so it's really interesting. Yeah. So I think it works out. Whatever I said there. Uh, Anyway, a little above that, $10 and above, that's our highest tier, and we do something that's pretty special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently, and I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little personalized thank you note, and mail it off to our $10 and above supporters. 
So thank you to everyone at that level. Currently, Adam Speakerman, Patrick Yako, Michael McGrath, Jason Westhaver, and Chris Otto. If you want to see those postcards without signing up, you can head over to redbubble.com, R-E-D-B-U-B-B-L-E.com, and search for Lost in Criterion. And uh, our postcards should pop up, as well as a whole lot of other Criterion-related stuff that is mostly people making stickers <laughs> mostly, of actual Criterion covers. Mostly just plagiarized uh, <laughs> and, and various sorts of copyright right. infringement. Um, right. Yeah, if you want to go see some of our work mixed in with a whole right. bunch of copyright infringement, go <laughs> right. to Redbubble. Uh, but you won't be able to see our work that has been accused of being copyright infringement Fuck because Redbubble Red is apparently after us more than anyone I'm, else on the I, website. Right. It's really weird. Like, okay, I will admit some of mine have definitely, there are some that are certainly not fair use. Like, I have definitely right. committed copyright infringement a few Right, times. but none of those have been challenged. But yeah, none of those. It's the ones that I'm like, well, this is very clearly, I did some, I, 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 I noticeably altered this work. Like, this is right. new. Uh, right. And uh, yeah, nonetheless. Anyway, as I said, redbubble.com and search for Lost on Criterion if you want to check those out. You can buy old ones if you like. You can buy many of them as stickers, some of them as buttons, where the artwork works for any of those things. Uh, but over at patreon.com, so that's Lost in Criterion if you want to support us directly. And thanks for those who do, but thanks for listening, even if you can't support yes. us financially. We appreciate it regardless. Well, this week we're uh, we're watching an interesting little documentary. Uh, it's been uh, a roller coaster of Criterion's recently. Well, yeah, this one uh, is as it way always is, outside. as it always is. But this feels like yeah. even more left field than nowhere than than normal because, like, what the hell? <laughs> what are we watching today? Yeah. This is our second Ingmar Bergman documentary. Uh, way back when, our first one was. Uh, Mark Burbing makes a movie, uh, which was directed by uh, uh, Vilgot Showman, um, and and was delightful. But was part of a box set. It was it was an addendum on the end to the uh, the God trilogy through a glass darkly, winter right. light, and the silence, and was was actually a, a welcome emotional turn from from those movies. Right, right, too. yeah. It, it, it uh, made sense at the time. Yeah. Uh, whereas this kind of exists ethereally in its in its own spot, not around other Bergman movies, and nowhere is, near uh, a Bergman movie. When was the last time we watched a Bergman movie? It has. It's been a while, and like, uh, to the point where I'm. I was like, we were watching this, and I was like, yeah, I remember these movies, but some of these movies were fucking eight years, like seven years ago, or some shit like that. It's like, oh god, do I remember what happened in that movie? Right, right, right. Well, I am. Uh, I'm trying to look for our last Bergman. It would have been one of his early ones. Our next Bergman movie is uh, number five thirty-seven, The Magician, and our most previous Bergman movie was Sawdust and Tem- Tinsel at four twelve. So it has been over a year since we've seen right, a Bergman right, and I movie. had forgotten about over Sawdust a year. and Tinsel. Yeah, it'll be over a year before we see another Bergman movie, and here we are. Uh, between the curious case of Benjamin Button and last year at Marybond, it's just we have really weird. Well, the okay. Isle. Now, interestingly enough, though, the mo- the this movie makes reference to last year at Marybond in in it. It really, yeah, it does. Yeah, um, which is well, actually, enough, the bonus material makes reference to it because 
it's very clear apparently that Bergman was making reference to it in I which movie was that? That was um uh, the one with the kid in the in the in the building and wandering around. Yeah, uh, and, uh, this uh, I think they're talking about Persona, but also it pops up in Silence. I think, yeah, too. yeah, yeah, uh, or the Silence rather. Um, but yeah, uh, we haven't seen Persona yet, so uh, right. I uh, I thought they were talking about the Silence just because I I thought that scene looked familiar, but it could also be not. You know, there also could be more than one movie with that sort yeah. of shot in it. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, Persona's not until number 701, which seems kind of late, uh, honestly, yeah. for for what is considered one of his masterpieces. Uh, but who knows? They want to space it out. They want to they be able to keep giving us Bergman all the way to the end yeah. until the heat death of the universe. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is very interesting how, how Bergman is so sort of evenly spaced throughout yeah, the Yeah, they try to give you one like one every hundred or so you get yourself a yeah. get yourself a Bergman. Um I mean yeah, I don't know though. I I like for example, I had forgotten that in Fanny and Alexander, like he sees death. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I had forgotten completely. I was like I saw it and I was like, well th- I definitely watched this there movie. Is. I had forgotten that this was a thing. Yeah, because that well, was that, a million years ago. Another aspect of of things like that, Fanny of Alexander ended up being a couple of episodes for us because uh, the the film version, the film version, and the television version have separate spine numbers, if I remember correctly. And then there's wow. a third spine number that's the making of Fanny and Alexander. So which it was something I really spent, liked. I liked the making of yeah. Fanny and Alexander probably as much as I liked the actual movie because I just thought it was a really fun to watch his process. It really was. was really it really was. It really was, and it was a different. So I guess this is the the third Bergman documentary, yeah. actually, that we have. At least uh, I'd forgotten about that one for a second. But um, did Bergman make his own the making? No, it was made by one of the like the assistant directors or something. Made the making. I believe of Fanny so. and Alexander. But like, it was contemporaneous with like Bergman making the movie that they like were shooting that. So it was, it's one of those. Well, Bergman Bergman is credited as the director of the making of Fanny and Alexander on like, on Wikipedia, yeah. but I'm not working that up on the criteria. Yeah, website I feel right like now, when so we watch it, I thought I remembered like like some AD was like actually in charge of making it or something, but I could be wrong. It's been a very long time. Right, right, right. It has, it has, it has been. It was like uh, two sixty nine or something like that. Some, it some was, low. Yeah, it was in the two sixties. Um, so long ago. Yeah. We were so much younger than Adam. We we really were. We really, really were. So innocent. Um, yeah, IMDb credits him as the director of it as well. So oh, okay. I um, mean, all right. Yeah. So anyway, in any case, obviously he wasn't shooting it. Um, <laughs> He's like, it's yeah, all it's was, all selfies the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. Not that he, you know, he wasn't camera operator on his movies usually. <laughs> yeah. So, but... But yeah, this uh, this week we're talking about Bergman Island, uh, 2016. Up oh, to no, I'm sorry, Bergman Island from 2006, uh, directed by Marie Nirod, uh, Nirod probably. Um, I don't know. I have no idea. Swedish. It, <laughs> Swedish is one of those where I really have no basis for how to pronounce anything. No, so. I mean, and then all you end up doing is is if you try, you end up sounding like the Swedish chef, and that feels mean. 
right, right. And then, then you listen to like narration in one of these movies, and you're like, well, it sounds pretty accurate to me. It's, yeah, it's not that bad. It's not that far. Uh, anyway, um, she also writes the accompanying essay with this. Uh, Bergman and I is the name of the essay. Um, from which I learned that the progenity of this was uh, that she had, was a culture reporter for Swedish national television. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had first interviewed Bergman in 1983 uh, when she was just a temp in the news department. Um, and then uh, became sort of his his interviewer uh uh he she is the only person bergman ever invited to interview him on pharaoh uh she stayed at his house when she when she came particularly when making this but at other times too uh stayed in his well yeah they even sort of he talks about like being surprised to discover in a room or something like that and it's like right this is a this is a an unusual relationship to say the least Right. Uh, there's one point where she was in town for uh, a Ber- the Bergman Festival, uh, I believe, and Bergman's housekeeper fell ill, so she acted as housekeeper for him for a week or three, uh, also staying on hand. Um, so they had they had an interesting relationship um, that that does not appear to have been a continuation of Bergman's serial monogamy. Well, <laughs> no, I would I, I any will, accusations of that sort. Well, <laughs> here's what I will say about that is yeah, maybe not, but also like in the sense not 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 in a purely sexual sense, but very clearly this is a man who like needs somebody to play mommy for him to a certain extent. <laughs> maybe. Like, you know maybe. what I mean? Like it's like you know, oh, my housekeeper fell ill. Can you, reporter that I know, be my housekeeper? Is a very, is a very right. unusual no... relationship. Yeah, there's also no real indication as to whether she sort of stepped into that role without being asked or was asked from her right. essay writing on it. So, so I don't know. Well, we don't um, know, but but okay, but like people yeah. respond to the situation, like unless she's the like intensely overbearing like she probably didn't step in without obviously noticing that this man's going to die if he's not taken right. care of right you right. don't know he, he, has, any... he never came back from one of his walks or something <laughs> yeah. like that like uh you know i i'm just saying it does seem I like do. we learn things about bergman in this that we kind of already knew but like it sort of amplifies that like this is a person who both wants to be alone and also maybe is incapable of being alone functionally in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I found, I found actually very, very interesting was when he was talking about his daily routine and he said that he goes into his cinema at 3 PM every day. That is his routine. And then a couple minutes later, he mentions that the housekeeper shows up at 3 PM every day. Right. Uh, and there's no, there's no overt, uh, tying of those two facts within the narrative of the documentary but it seems pretty clear it seems pretty clear why that happens right (laughs) why that timing is what it is um uh ingrid who was his uh longest wife uh and the only the only person he was married to for more than a decade um ingrid von rosen 
uh, he was married to from 71 to her death in 95. So by this time, he had been 11 years. Uh, well, by the time they were released, so you life. get the impression that the movie was, the documentary was filmed earlier. Because he says like eight yeah. years or something like that. It, it, clearly, there was some lag right, time after right, they finished right. recording. It was, he says right. exactly how long it had been in this movie. And I, I think it was like. I eight believe it was eight years. I believe you're right. Um, yeah. Uh, but he talks about how he has nine kids from five different women. Like. Uh, this is indicative of something, right? Like, but then, I mean, but then, but then also the the two actresses, the two of his actresses he had relationships with, aren't were never spouses. Like, so right. Uh, there's uh, there's some other things going. There's on. There's a lot going on with Birdman. There was there was never any amount of time from 1943 to 1969 that he was not officially married. Right, and uh, and yet. And yet, he had more relationships than uh, um, than his marriages. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of negative things you could say about his right, behavior right, right, with right. regards to the women in his life. My ish, my only real major sort of like kind of sticking point on this movie is that, to a certain extent, at multiple points in this, I got this sort of like it's almost like Bergman's last chance to like. Recount, reconstruct his own history, like to like re, like in the like to like to like he it has a sort of a sort of like putting the record straight sort of vibe, but my at at a few different points he like talks about things retro like where he sort of is like retroactively changing things by like trying to like recontextualize them like well I that was just an offhanded comment well. Was it though, or is that right, actually right, what you were right. thinking forty fucking years ago? And now that you're older, you feel bad about what you, the way you said it, or what you did, and you want to sort there of is, rewrite history. There are obvious moments in this where he is speaking of the past with regret, um, mm-hmm. and I don't know that it is necessarily regret he would have had if he weren't making an interview and having to having to say. Oh, I did this and this and this, because the interviewer just asked about it, and obviously, you—it should be something you should feel shame for, right? So. No, they are all—all <laughs> all the things he feels shame for are shameful acts. Let's be very clear. <laughs> right, right, um, right. The thing, well, see, the way I'm kind of coming at this is a couple different ways. Number one, this is the only interviewer he appears to like, right. which means to a certain extent, I—I I have to imagine this is all speculation. That this is also because he feels this interviewer is friendliest to him. Right. You know, people in this sort of position have a tendency to self-select for interviewers they know will be nice to them. Will 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 paint them in flattering light. That okay? is fair. It, it, there's, it's unavoidable. And basically every celebrity does it. Because why wouldn't you? Like, why would you? Why would you pick a person who's going to fucking tear you a new one? Like, there's no reason right. to, right? So, to a certain extent, I imagine he kind of has some control over this situation. You know what I mean? Like, he he yeah. kind of knows what questions are. I, you get the impression he's going to know what questions are coming, or at least generally what the topics will be. Um, and so he's kind of because he seems very like it's obviously over a long period of time too, right? Because like. We have right. cuts where he's like, well, now we're in this room and I've gotten this thing out of the attic. Let's check this thing out. Like, you know, like, 
And so, like, so, those aren't surprise. He's not getting, like, it's not like he's on, like, a live broadcast and he's got a pop question. Like, these are questions that he could, in theory, like, know what's coming. And he... Yeah. And what I suspect is that he's nearing, he knows he's nearing the end of his life, right? Like, he's he's older, he's probably not going to give him any more interview, even if he doesn't know, obviously he doesn't know when he's going to die. But, like, right. I'm not going to be giving a bunch more interviews. This is my last chance to sort of right. decide what my legacy is, like, in, the definitive word on me. In Naira's telling, she had for many years been trying to convince him to let her do a documentary portrait of his life and work. Uh, and he made the made-for-TV movie Sarabond, which we haven't seen, but we talked briefly about because it's kind of kind of a sequel and stars the same people as Scenes from a Marriage. Right. And uh, he made that as a swan song. He was retiring after he made that. And after he made that, he agreed to uh, to the documentary. Uh, she talks about it being a fairly open conversation that there were uh, there were certain things he didn't want shown, but what he didn't want shown was like him riding a bike. Uh, right, right, yeah. This is in no yeah. way flattering. Um, <laughs> right, 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 right. Where he was, where she she frames it, suggesting that he had never said no to uh to any questions that she asked. Right. Um I don't know that that's necessarily true. Right. And I uh, right. But and I'm not I do, even suggesting that he is like in control of it in that capacity. I'm right, suggesting right, right. he knows this interviewer. He knows what they're going to talk about. Right. He know and he's prepared to talk about these things because part of what he seems to want to do is recontextualize yeah. the things that he did and has done throughout history a little bit make them a little right. bit his own and like take control. Right. And it's not just like bad things. You know what I mean? Like some of it's bad stuff, some of it's very bad stuff. Um including just like abandoning his wife apropos of nothing and then making a movie about it. Fucking asshole. Right. But uh <laughs> Like there's no very, way to not there's no way to not contextualize that one actually but, yeah. yeah uh but still that one definitely yeah. there's there's no way you don't come away from that thinking boy what an asshole but right. um and he tries to like talk about his guilt about it and things like that and then takes a very like strange modernist turn on guilt about like well guilt is meaningless because it, it's incomparable to the feeling of the people you hurt and it's like yeah but you should still feel bad dude like right. for real. Um, I don't, you can philosophize your way out of it, but you still feel bad. Uh, but no, it's weird stuff that he tries to recontextualize too. Like, like, which movie was it? It's like he had quote unquote offhandedly said it was about his mother. Yes. And then he's trying to like say, well, it wasn't. I just said it. It's just one of those things you say. It's like, yeah, but like a lot of times the shit you just say off the cuff is pretty reflective of the truth. Yeah. Like yeah. what you think when you don't have time to think is often very telling. I'm betting it's about your mother, man. 
Yeah. And you don't want it to be anymore. You want to erase that because you don't want, for whatever reason, you regret that and you don't want it to be that anymore. And you're like, well, I'm going to try to erase it here. It's probably not like conscious in the sense that, like, well, I'm giving this interview to erase this one comment I made in 1963. Like, no. But like it comes up and you're like, well, you know, that was just a thing I said that I that I suspect he's probably been thinking about for a long time. It was it was cries and whispers. It was cries and whispers. And he had said uh, that the uh, I can't cries and whispers. It's been so long since we watched. (laughs) And I really I really just remember the color, the color palette of it more than anything because all those reds and whites. Right. Um, the the like uniformly red room that they go into in their white dresses. But uh, but he talks about the women in that film all being different aspects of his mother. Right. Uh, in interviews from the time. And then I'm reminded through all of this, actually, very much of an early early to us quote we ran across. With I think our first Buñuel film, where Buñuel said it was impossible for him to be psychoanalyzed yes, yeah, because yeah, yeah, he knew yeah, himself totally. too well. It's one of the best Whereas, quotes we've ever had in a, so in, a in an so interview. Good. I'm just very I'm very glad for for Buñuel to uh, to know himself well enough to say something like that, so we know not to trust him. <laughs> right to really give away the whole game right there, like right, almost right. the first time we encounter him. Right, right, right. It's very good, uh, but. Uh, uh, <laughs> I just reminded of that because, like Bergman, Bergman is all about self-analyzation, right? right? That's all of his movies are are him dealing with the fallout of his bad parents, basically, right? For right. Most of it. Well, and or then, him being and a then, bad parent. The other right also then, goes the other, and direction. then eventually switch, eventually switch over to being about him being a bad parent and a little bit of mix, you know. Um, and Fanny and Alexander certainly a lot of draw from that. We learn particulars from from this. I also find it very interesting. Criterion's bonus for this Bergman 101, which is much shorter than this, but is also a career retrospective documentary, where we get a balance of this is Bergman telling us about his career, and then we have a scholar also telling you the which exact I found <laughs> fascinating because sometimes they running, they directly the are same the things. same thing, right. and sometimes right. like. They work in almost different directions, right? Uh, right. They're never they're never really openly contradictory, but you can definitely see yeah, a you can feel uh, it. Yeah. a different framing on on right. some things that are being said. Um, but yeah, the in learning about Bergman's childhood from this, I am fascinated by uh, by how I see certain childhood traumas play out. Oh yeah, for sure. In his films and in his life throughout. Um this is intergenerational uh emotional abuse at at best. Uh sometimes physical abuse he says about his father and also about whoever it is that locked him in a morgue. Uh Right, yeah, he was also traumatized by like other just sort of apparently random people as well or friends right, right, or whatever. Right, right, friends or whatever. Um, yeah, so, you know, his obsession with death throughout his film work is not surprising. It seems definitely he, directly connected to trauma, 100%. Right, since he seems to have spent some hours locked in a room with dead bodies. Right, uh, with, with one, apparently, which, like, severely 
like he believed was watching him, which makes sense, right? As one slowly succumbs to the, the and situation. I think, I think the way he tells that story and the particularities of it being a young woman whose oh, body yeah, he yeah. thinks is watching him is also maybe an under not to you know play armchair psychologist to to Bergman in this, but there are threads that I think uh, are are revealed and followed in an editorial sense through this even if uh even if the action the the action of the interviewer do not necessarily pull those threads right i mean now, I also right in that regard and in in your commentary of bergman having a certain amount of control here it's also interesting that uh uh Nerode, um I'm going to say her name differently every time I say it in the hopes that one time I say it correctly. Uh, Nerode um, originally produced this documentary as three one-hour television episodes, uh-huh. one dedicated to film, one dedicated to Bergman and the theater, and one dedicated to uh, oh, you Bergman can, you on Faro. You can see that in the actual final production. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, she found out then that uh, internationally – no one was bothering to show the theater dedicated one. Well, because that, that makes was sense, not because they that was never not a, seen any of his theater right. productions. <laughs> right, that was not of interest to to international audiences. Uh, so she decided, in conversation with Berkman, to edit the Faro and the uh, film principally down to a single feature length documentary. And he helped her edit. Oh, so he, interesting. He had some amount of editorial control. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. And again, I don't think it's like, I don't think it's one of those things where he's like, oh, no, 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 we're cutting this shit out. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think it was like I that. I, I'm not trying to accuse him of like malfeasance or malpractice or something. Right. I'm right, just saying, right. There's... like, he had a lot of points of control over this. Like, down to the fact that she's fucking staying at his house, right, right, like right. there, and the, like it, it all given a different context would border on actually just being plain inappropriate, right? Like on a sort of if it were true, like if it, if the goal was like some sort of true, almost journalistic type documentary, it would be inappropriate. But because it's there's sort some, of a there's some ethical issues in right, that house, exactly, yes. But Certainly. because it's sort of just like, well, it's just a career retrospective, and like no one really gives a fuck. Like we're no, and and like I right, don't right, really, right. except for the fact that like it kind of feels like Bergman wants to like close out his narrative in a way that like tells it the way he wants it to be understood. Right. 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 Like and and, I, and, and not even necessarily like rewriting history exactly, but like. No, I want you to view this in this light. I want I want somebody right. in 20 years to make Making, a Wikipedia page that acknowledges that I said this thing about this thing. Right. Making sure that his framing exists as, as the final record. Or at least and, a framing that's out there. They're like, when people right. talk about a thing, they have to mention that Bergman also said this thing in right, a 2006 right, right. documentary or whatever. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's that kind of like, well, just so you know, I saw it this way. And there's that's a that that gives it a little bit of a vibe of like well 
Do I, I listen to 2006 Bergman or do I listen to 1964 Bergman? Because these in, guys are not saying the same thing. In rereading this section of the essay, he maybe did not help her edit. So, the summer of 2006 was Igmar's last good summer. I came to Faro to participate in the annual Bergman Week of Lectures and Films. Once again, I moved into Bergman's guesthouse. Not long after I arrived, Ingmar's housekeeper fell ill, and I took over her chores. Ingmar was pleased, and I stayed on for three weeks. During that time, he wa- we watched the recut Bergman Island together, and Ingmar was very happy with the results. Right, so he um, probably didn't, but again, like that doesn't really change right. the thrust of my point. Like, yeah, but yeah, she does I mean, say he didn't edit she does it, say, but. yeah, she does say that the decision to re-edit them into one feature length was a decision they made together. Right. Uh, so. Well, and that tells you a lot in and of itself, right? Because she is, to a certain extent, beholden to his wishes with regards to this, a thing that she doesn't, like, in any legal sense, have any obligation to be. Yeah, probably not. Like, I he mean, agreed that, to maybe, do this interview. It's over. Maybe like, the she maybe the, has the video they, she shot. Maybe right. maybe the contract she signed uh, had some sort of on it. Maybe, but my or guess maybe, is that maybe like, since because she was changing the format of use right maybe. from from the television episodes True. that maybe had an agreed upon distribution as films into a different film, uh, he would need some sort maybe, of maybe. But I, I also know. suspect anyway. that there's a lot more sort of tacit agreement going on than just purely <laughs> yeah. contractual stuff. Just based on you describing this essay, too, like it seems yeah. like he trusts her and she doesn't want to betray that trust. And that creates an environment, a very specific kind of like interviewer, interviewee environment. Like, I'm just yeah. saying, I doubt I do. he was surprised by anything he was asked, is all I'm saying. Right, 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 right. But at the same time, in wanting to do, I don't know, Bergman put so much of himself into his films mm-hmm. that he's kind of an open book in well, in many ways. I, I've been thinking about that. Yeah, he is, right? Although, yeah, not in a plain, not in exactly what a plain, straightforward way, right? Like, without the, like, family contextualization, like, without, like, his literal family history contextualization for specific things, you get an idea of what's going on inside of Bergman, but you don't know exactly what... Like, some of the stories we heard make things, like, paint things in stark, like, relief, where you're like, oh, this is just that. Right. Like, like, this part of that movie was just that. Whereas, until then, what you're going to do, like, okay, well, this is a a Bergman stand-in, and like we can understand that this thing was traumatizing or he was something happened in his youth like regarding this or that and we can kind of like get a general feel for it yeah but when you hear specific family stories then it right. becomes more it, his open book becomes more readable right like it's like okay well yeah. now i know exactly what that thing was right right emotionally spiritually ideologically Bergman's movies tell us who he is. Right. But but tell us oftentimes in ways that are so specific to his own 
mental state in that moment, even sometimes, right. that uh, that it's interesting to get this perspective, not because it gives us new keys to unlock understanding of Bergman, but because it gives us the threads between things we already knew. Right. 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 Uh, so we get to realize why he's obsessed with death. We get to realize why, uh, why the stepfather in Fanny Alexander acts in the way he does, because right. many of those particularities are drawn from Bergman's father. Uh, which was already pretty clear by the fact that right we that well knew and that's what dad I was, was a minister and this guy's right. a minister too right right and and what I would say uh, is the difference is for me is what we got before is we had really pretty clear but broad strokes understanding of the kind of person Bergman was right and this like now shows us like instead of these sort of broader like strokes but like still very clear. We have like, oh no, these are like specific life events, almost right, right. rendered almost like verbatim, changed, right? but still verbatim into film, and that's a different thing. That's a different thing to know, right? Like, oh, like you're just acting out a scene of some of your trauma, and here it right. is on screen. I will say this: I do feel like he has a problem that I've that we've encountered quite often in sort of auteurs and stuff, which is like. Here's all the things that are wrong with me. I'm in no way changing or fixing any of them. <laughs> well, you know, because if he changed anything, what would he make movies about? Well, that's, yeah, I will never buy. No, I will never buy into the broken, the necessary broken artist philosophy. You can make think, art and not be a broken person. I, I, I agree, but I. That's another thing I attribute more to Fellini's view of himself than, uh, right, right. than say, Bergman. Well, but, uh, but when you start to but, watch this and you start to think about, like, the, the, the sort of serial monogamy and all these other problems and you realize, like, he's making movies about and we talked about. I'm sure we talked about this with Scenes from a Marriage. Definitely. Right, right. Because we didn't oh, know right. the exact story, but we definitely knew the broad brushstrokes of that story already. I remember talking right. about it at the time. What we end up with is like this, like, well, yeah, this is also another very skilled artist who is 100% not willing to actually, on a deeper level, engage with the things he knows is wrong with him. Like, right, he just right. isn't, right? Like, now, he's now I think the particularities, the particularities of Bergman's trauma, I think, affect that, though. Because on the one hand, True. there is the, the sort of self-imposed trauma of the serial monogamy though that itself draws it's definitely related to the, other stuff yes right right and the relationship he saw modeled by his parents right uh whereas there's other things like fanny and alexander that throughout his career are just drawing on the childhood trauma more than anything and and sometimes in manner the childhood joys you know the yes, time at his yeah. grandparents uh, his grandma's apartment the Christmases with his family that were that were good despite whatever. I really loved, you know, not not only only by nature from jumping off from Christmas. I really loved the conversation he had, the story he told about buying the uh, projector from his brother because right. his brother got it for Christmas and he didn't, and his brother didn't care about it and he absolutely wanted it. Uh, well, th th what struck me about that in a very weird way is like one of the podcasts I listened to a while ago was talking about like parents and grandparents doing like trick like 
prank Christmas gifts and how they would do things like that. And I was yeah. like, is this just a prank that went wrong? Like, was that supposed to go to him? And like, nobody bothered to like <laughs> correct the issue. It's like, oh, right. we bought that for you, but then we switched the name tags because we thought it'd be funny. And then here we are. We didn't fix the problem. Right, right. If there was an indication that uh, that Ingmar had gotten the uh, the 150 tin soldiers that he traded for it, also no, for but he Christmas. got a teddy bear, which is <laughs> but he not got a teddy bear, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Which seems like its own. Or maybe own. he was a bad boy. He wasn't supposed to get the projector. Maybe he was right. being a little uh, bad kid. Like, oh no, he's <laughs> maybe getting... that's it. They just switched the name on the projector because, as a, as an he had been a bad kid for a while. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, that's that's in line with the sort of abuse that we get Absolutely. from his dad. Anyway, well, and, and that the, was the sort of takeaway I got from this discussion right. on the podcast was a lot of parents are bordering on abuse fairly often. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, maybe you guys shouldn't be doing this. And you know, some of some of that abuse also lays at. Uh, mid-century early 20th century pediatric culture too right yes the doctor absolutely. the doctor who tells his mom not to show him affection so he can become a better man yeah uh, you're, you're, he's not a girl after all i think was like the, yeah the right phrase. right literally literally like, really just quotes, like go fuck yourself to that quotes doctor. from the doctor yeah yeah uh you know and again oh, your child wants love kick him out the door right right that's bergman recounting those right, things yeah. so you know that's through that is him talking about the origins of his it's, trauma through the lens very of his much trauma. Third so, person at, at, at the right, very right. minimum. But but there is an implication that these were things that were said actively in front of him too, right. which is well. And he talks about even not worse. getting like he regularly talks and in other interviews and other things that we've encountered about not getting very much affection from his mother. Right, 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 right. And that's that's something that's talked about a lot here. Um, and you know that's. That also plays into a lot of a lot of his movies as well. So, Absolutely, uh, and you know, I don't want I don't want to suggest anything of some sort of Freudian interpretation of Bergman's entire career. Uh, well, I, I'd rather avoid Freudian interpretations of anything if that's if that's right, all right, right with you. Right. Uh, no, but, I mean, but, but like, I do I do think his relationship with his mom and the lack of affection from his mother. Uh, does play into why he can't maintain a relationship uh, or show affection to his children. Uh, so, right. I mean, like, and also, you know, this this the descriptions of his relationship with the father, his father are hyper abusive. That like, right? I'm doing right. I'm Actively beating abusive. you because I love you is just such yeah. a fucked up world to be in. Like and the fact, the fact that the the scene from Family and Alexander where it's kiss my hand and apologize for me because you made me angry apparently at apparently verbatim is a is a thing that happened is wow. Yeah, just. it's really fucked up. Well, that's what I was kind of talking about is that like learning that that's not a thi- learning that that's not a dramatization to like heighten reality. You know, when we watch that, I watched that and I said, "Okay, we're talking about abusive father figures here, but we're right. we're we're heightening it to make it more abusive." You know what I mean? Like I'm demonstrating my trauma by magnifying it in a way to make it clearer for the audience. And then finding out later, nearly what, like, fucking how many years later, that no, that's just a thing that happened is some real fucked up shit, man. Like, it really, like, in my head I was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, so what we learn is Ingmar Bergman is a 
severely broken person. <laughs> like, right. Right. And like, and like, it's understandable. Like, where a lot of what he is doing comes from. I mean, would some therapy have helped? Probably. Probably. Uh, instead of and maybe I'd, just running away from all the women you meet in your life, I'd be uh, interested maybe? in seeing how how he would have reacted to therapy. He never talks about therapy or or having experience in it. But in any case, he talks sort of at the end of this documentary about it being a relief that he never lost creativity, that the the demon of nothingness or whatever he calls it. Uh, never took hold of him and he was always able to create and there's a particular worry that i find in a lot of creative people who i know personally that uh fixing yourself will make you less creative right uh usually usually through it's people thinking well if i start to take these antidepressants or or right or other mood stabilizers um, that I will I will lose my create creativity, uh, and I think it's important to realize that what those what those pills do is make your uh, make your brain produce the stuff that other people are already producing on their own. Uh, right. Uh, so anyway, well, I mean, I get where that it's important comes, to take uh, that stuff, and, it's and, it, and it's all stuff. part of a, a weird. Right. complex that like we as a society have built right because we often choose and like teachers and all kinds of groups of people laud those sort of uh sort of suffering artists right that like right right when we right, talk right. about them and we write about them and we it's always like we bring up those things as but though they are in that they're because they're present in their work we tend right. to like almost pseudo laud those Right, it's its own Conditions? circle. It's its own right. circle of abuse, right? right. It's <laughs> right because we 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 praise previous generations who were able to make it through that trauma and produce beautiful art. Uh, and of course, also, we even praise the ones who don't don't make it through, right? Quite right. a bit. And the who, funny thing about it is, is it it creates this really like really fascinatingly morbid environment of like, do you imagine that if like everybody were in good mental health, we would have no art? Right. That there would be no beauty made? Like what? Like huh? <laughs> like that like Amer- that humanity's uh like creative ex- expression is entirely dependent on people suffering and like having trouble with trauma and various other uh issues yeah. that like Right. What? Like that's 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 wild to 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 think, and, but that's kind of the the environment we've created. And because because we've created that environment intergenerationally, you know, I can I can look at Dylan Thomas and think Dylan Thomas produced great great work and then drunk himself to death, uh, and and maybe that he produced great work because he drunk himself to death, uh, and then I start to do that sort of thing, you know. Um, but uh, right. Whereas on the other hand, think about what would his work have been mm-hmm. better if he hadn't been in a position where he right. like you know was suffering and ended up drinking right. himself to death. Like right, right. There's right. a decent likelihood that that's true. Right. Like, and then, you know, I mentioned Dylan Thomas because he's mid 20th century and we go back another century uh, to someone like, say, Edgar Allan Poe, who did essentially the same thing. Uh, go back another century, uh, you know, back and back and yeah, back. I mean, it goes back for a those, very long time. Each of those yeah. generations looking at the previous generation and saying, well, they made it through and they created this work. 
uh, so I can do that too without the, uh, getting help. And and I wonder, not necessarily looking at other artists, I wonder how much of Bergman, I wonder if Bergman thought, uh, one, if he had a reticence toward therapy because of the culture he was raised in. Right. Um, I, I would also imagine that might be true. Like the, the up, his yeah. upbringing would probably very much push against that kind of. Right. Uh, kind and of, then. Uh, right. And then help. if there was if there was an alternative pushing against therapy because he felt like it might limit his creativity. Right. Uh, and instead, he just seems to find a series of women who he develops infatuations with and. uh and and Hanks. and maybe it seems like almost s- creates a very weird dynamic where he seems to separate like well these are the ones that will serve as my mother figure and these will be my right lover right. and this is that's woof yeah just boy howdy that's its own thing that's yeah woof. yeah um, so anyway you know I can certainly psychoanalyze well I mean Ingmar Bergman but like that's <laughs> but, the, that's position that this this documentary and Bergman have put us in to a certain extent right, right? right there's right. no movie here this movie is about him right because it's literally just him talking chronologically through his life right um, and so we we have to engage with the things that come out of his mouth right like right. <laughs> and that's all we've got there's a lot of you know it's shot and it's edited and it's a very lovely film um I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to yeah, downplay no. any artistic merit of this. No, that's uh, not. You know, that's not what I meant. But, but it is. But it is. I mostly. mean, there's no. It's like it has no. It has. It is a documentary, right? And it is. And it's an and interview it is, documentary. It's an interview which, documentary made by a person who very explicitly seems to be trying to avoid being on camera at all, almost. Right. Yeah. And is trying to put Bourbon a hundred percent in the spotlight. So. Given that, like, that really just makes Bergman the movie. And so, okay, we have to talk about the things he talks about. And the reality of the matter is, is he has a lot of interesting things to say. Like, like you said, like, you know, it paints a lot of things in really, like, very clearly. Uh, but, you know, it also it does end up leaving us being like, well, okay, well, here are the things that are wrong with Bergman. Like, right. <laughs> here's a list of the things that, like, and some of them Berman seems very, very well aware of. Uh, you know, he's he seems to be very well aware of some of his problems. Uh, and that could also be somewhat the perspective of age, right? Like, he's getting up in age at that point. Uh, it's, like, only, what, four years before his death, I think they said, is when they were making it. Uh, it would have been. beginning. I mean, if they made this after Sarabond, and Sarabond came out in two thousand three, and he died in two thousand seven, so yeah, I mean, they said yeah, like they wrote yeah, yeah, exactly. This is probably like yeah, this is the same year or like right after they said right. at the very beginning, like this is like the four years before his death or whatever, right? So yeah, yeah, that all makes sense. It's just, it's like well, you know, he very clearly knows he's reaching the end. Uh, in this documentary, am, like the way he talks about himself is about a person talking right. about like we've all seen it before where and a I, person's like, well, I'm in retrospective mode because right. not a lot of new stuff is going to be happening. I got to I got to say, I certainly enjoyed and got more out of Imar Bergman talking about his own career and his own 
uh, personalities uh, than I got from any of the Imamara interviews that oh, were on well, that yeah, box no, set for sure. a couple Absolutely. weeks ago. Well, because Igmar Bergman, while I think maybe he's trying to kind of like maybe control the narrative, like I don't feel like Igmar Bergman's just straight up bullshitting me. Right, 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 right. You know what I mean? Like my problem with Imamura was is that like I got a real gross vibe from him all the way through those inter- that interview right. and everything else, right? Like this is a dude who like is playing a game and we get to like participate. Whereas Bergman is maybe trying to be like, look, I was really sorry about the bad thing I did. <laughs> right. Like for real guys, like I didn't feel good about it. I even maybe knew it was bad at the time and did it anyway. Right. Um which is not much of an excuse, but there we are. Um, I don't know. I also get I get a feeling from some other directors we've experienced where they do the bad thing sort of co- unconsciously, purposely, in order to make the art about doing the bad thing right. later. It and is, I never I is, never really get that feel from Bergman. No, so. it's possible that Bergman is just slightly more broken and just does it like <laughs> compulsively right. and like Right, right. Which I don't know, it doesn't help any of the victims of <laughs> that behavior. Right. That, that 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 it's like purely uncontrollable. But like, you know, in the end it's it's just that like I don't I don't think he's being like I said, I don't think he's being disingenuous or anything like that. And you know, it seems natural when, you know, you're some of this stuff is forty years on to be like, you know, look here's how I see it now that I'm fully forty to forty five years older than I was when I did that thing. Um yeah. I get it all. It's just it's and it's really fascinating to to watch. It's I think the more interesting part though for me is just sort of inhabiting Bergman's world. Like what he's saying is fine, and I learned some interesting bits of information for sure. But what's more fascinating is like how much it feels like you're hanging out with kind of a weird grandpa. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, it's not even like your grandpa. You don't get that feeling of like, this is my grandpa. It's more like, did you ever, when you were growing up, have a neighbor that you would like go visit? And like, they would, like, they were usually elderly, and you'd like, well, like, here's the weird things from my life that I've got in this house that I've been in for 50 years. Like, and would just kind of like, talk to you about that like stuff like i don't know how to explain like he reminds me of like some of the like specific kind of reminds me of one of my neighbors growing up that i would just like go visit him and his wife and like hang out sometimes and like he was a really nice guy and like but he like had a whole like you know a whole like like craft like sh- shed and like like talk about the things in there and stuff. He's just right, like right, right, kind of right. tooling around telling you about stuff because it's like, well, I want to talk to somebody. I'll talk to this seven year old. He'll listen. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, it has a weird feel to it. It's not a weird, like not in a bad way. It's just like you get the impression you're just sort of kind of hanging out with Bergman to a certain extent. Like, oh, I'm going to show you this like cinemagraph I have. And I'll tell you about like how it came to be. Yeah. It's like this is insightful, but it's not in the way like where you're talking about a specific element of one of your films. It's more like this is just how how Bergman became Bergman, and maybe it's relevant, and maybe it's not. Maybe it's like, well, I found this thing, and I want to talk about it. 
Like, this is the first sort of video movie thing I ever owned. And, like, I'm going to tell you about it. You know what I mean? I don't know how to describe it. Like, we kind of get into his music, his music collection. It's like, we're not really there because, like, it's super-duper right. duper relevant. It's more just because he wants to share it with us. I'm uh, I'm looking at the list of Bergman's children now, and I'm kind of intrigued by it. Um, apparently, he... With the exception of of Liv Ullman, uh, he married every woman that he had children with. Um, Lynn Ullman. For how long? He never married. Never married her mother. Um, usually, uh, after they had children together, um, I am I am slightly intrigued. Uh, he had with his first wife, Else Fisher. He had one daughter who became an actress with his second wife, Ellen Lundstrom, uh, who was a choreographer and film director in her own right. She, they had, uh, four children, uh, Ava, Jan, Mats, and Anna, um, who are twins, Mats and Anna, who all became directors. Uh, Jan uh-huh. principally on stage, I believe, but they're all, they're all listed as film directors on Criterion or on uh, on Wikipedia here. Um, uh, that would suggest um, he had two two sons, Mats and Jan, uh, before meeting Gunn, who is the one we particularly talk about in the documentary, right. because that is that is the. Uh, the woman he fell in love with in Stockholm while he had five kids at home, right? Right. Um, and where his his breaking of that news to Ellen was it the inspiration is scenes for, for a marriage, basically for the opening of scenes of the marriage. Yeah. Uh, where I get intrigued um, is that uh, his one child with Gun is Ingmar Bergman Jr. And huh. it's the first of his children to not he he became an airline pilot. He's the only <laughs> the only of his kids to not enter into creative work. Next relationship produced Daniel Bergman and became a film director. Right. Uh his uh his last wife, uh Ingrid von Rosen, uh he had a daughter with her uh twelve years before they got married, uh Maria von Rosen, who became an author. Uh, so Inger, Ingmar Bergman Jr. is the only the only one who did. I not feel like it's almost it's like some sort of like curse, where it's like, well, right. you're the one who can't do right. creativity, right? But also the fact that he he gave his name, he juniorized his third son, and the one he had with Gunn directly after leaving his five other kids with his ex wife. Right. Uh, is very uh, very psychologically interesting too. Yeah, I don't know what it, really it says. Is. I don't know. I don't yeah, know what don't to know know think what it means, about it. It's definitely, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's something, right? Like a lot of Bergman's work, I know it's saying something. I don't necessarily know what it's saying right now, right. Uh, but I get a feel for what it's saying, and maybe that's enough. Um, but yeah, uh, he excused all his affairs by saying uh at different points he doesn't say it in this interview but he has been quoted as saying he has so many lives i have so many lives that's why i have so many wives yeah i Uh, mean that's that's the thing right is that like you know he wants to this documentary talks about some of that stuff 
But in the end, like he seems most of the time basically unremorseful for right treating right, the right, women right. in his life kind of as disposable. Uh, it, it is just it is a it is just a strange thing about him that is like and something again, I'm and never again, gonna be able to let go of completely. He t- he tells a story about the first woman in his life who he tried to show affection to, took him to a doctor to find out what was I, wrong with him. I understand. So, kept like, crying and stuff. I get it. I mean, I totally understand. <laughs> but, you know, maybe if you can't, if you can't, if you cannot treat the people around you well, maybe stop. Yeah. You know, maybe the answer is just don't anymore. Uh, but whatever. Well, eventually it, he he does seem to have reached that same conclusion. Stop. Yes, that's uh, that's yes, does seem to uh, be true. Yeah, he joked he joked in the documentary that he didn't uh, he didn't end leave puberty until he was fifty eight, which is uh, uh, not quite. Let's see, fifty eight would have been uh, seven years into his marriage with Ingrid, his last right, wife. Right, right. So like. Uh, yeah, that's its own thing, but, um, but yeah, he, uh, you know, obviously in that conversation, he, he shows regret for, uh, for how he's treated his wives and children. But as you already pointed out, he then immediately pivots to talking about the philosophizing on the, the uselessness of regret. Right. It's still, it will never not be a little bit hollow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like and considering this is the sort of our, our probably our ultimate our final documentary, this is certainly the last thing made about him that's going where he's talking about himself. This is right. the final word on Bergman, which is I feel regret. Now I'm gonna talk about how regret is meaningless. Right. Uh, right. right. Like and how okay, I, well that's where we're gonna end this, huh? How I've decided I won't feel regret. Right. Which yeah. also well, like isn't true, because look at his work. He feels regret. He puts it into right. his work. So, right, and like, and also you wouldn't he wouldn't be bringing it up if he didn't. It's right. like that guy who's like, you know, it's kind of like a, I'm not mad. Like it's uh, it's that sort of like he's very yeah, much trying yeah. to cr- like proactively create a lack of guilt because it probably still it probably still bothers him. Here he is as a, a man of however many years old, like yeah, eighty five or whatever feeling remorse for the shit he did and really that's a kind of inescapable trap in and of itself and he doesn't even have any movies to pour it into anymore right <laughs> so he's just kind of stuck with it um so yeah i bet those last couple of years were a little rough i would yeah. bet they were very hard um and you can kind of see it right like he's very he almost is just sort of remorseful on screen like, not necessarily in what he's saying, but, like, when you look at him and the way he talks, he has a certain sort of, like, I don't know how to describe it. He has a certain sort of, um, he looks a little bit downtrodden. Like, in the, he always kind of is, right? Like, but, like, he looks more so, I would say. He has a sort of, like, you know, he looks worn down. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and you know, it happens. Let's see. How old would he have been in two thousand six if it was filmed in two thousand six? He's born in nineteen eighteen, so what's that? Um Well, he was eighty nine years old when he died. Yeah, so he and been... this is about four years before he died, so he was eighty five when we're watching him probably. Right, right, right. Thereabouts. Um 
So I guess I, I'm thinking also about Jean Painlev, who we saw talking about his own work, uh, very different work, uh, but also around the age of 85. And he certainly felt a lot more downtrodden, <laughs> but also a lot less regretted, <laughs> regretful right. than Right, I Bergman mean, they're does. all kind of like, we, we've seen yeah. a fair, we get to see a fairly decent number of directors and artists at this point. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. a thing that we've we've encountered multiple to- like quite a few times, and like they all have different perspectives on it. I mean, Berman just seems he seems like there are still things that obviously get him excited to talk about, right? But right, he also certainly. like sometimes he looks like he's he gets he's pretty deep in his head about like his life as well uh, at times in this, which is understandable, right? Because you know he's on this in this house alone. On an island where he essentially lives alone, right? Like, you know, what I mean, the, the whole population of the entire- island is five hundred people, right? Right, <laughs> so, and he's like, left almost entirely alone, yeah. as far as we, as we can tell. And like, it seems like being, you know, it's that sort of like he seems, you know, he says he likes yeah. it, but also you're like, mm, also seems like maybe you're really he in your head already, right now. According to the essay, he had already picked out his grave. He'd shown it to her. Yeah, uh, it was the back corner of the churchyard. Uh, and he just wanted to die alone, too. It seems like, yeah. yeah. He talks about he talks about missing Ingrid, and uh, yes. and that a desire to see her again is the only thing that gives him any any semblance of a belief in the afterlife. Um, Max von Sydow has said in interviews that late in life, uh, Bergman started to believe in. An afterlife, again, because of conversations the two of them have had. Uh, Bergman here frames any any belief in an afterlife simply as he wants as to a, see. Almost, yeah, is, is a he, sort he of wants uh, to see his like wife practical. Again. It's, right. it's, it's, I found that very fascinating, I, him discussing that particular, because hearing Bergman s- definitively, or at least as far as definitively goes for him, regarding something that approaches religion— like to right. speak in a sort of like a like matter all of fact of, way after right. his entire career is really fascinating. Like, yeah, because like he's in it, and like you can still tell though. Even then, when he's talking, he's like he's still convincing himself. He's still right. arguing right. himself into belief every day because he wants it that bad, which is a really fascinating thing to see. Like it really because you can tell that the, the all the things that are in all those movies are still there. Right, that that person who's like. I don't know about all of this. Right. And of course, uh, you know, 100% understand Bergman's relationship to religion, knowing about how abusive his minister father was. Right. 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 You his know? primary interaction. And we've talked about yeah. that before, but never right, to the, right, like, right. The, not right. with the concrete details we have here. Right. Like, the, his primary interaction with religion for most of his, his young life was an abuse, like, was highly right. abusive. That's, right. ugh. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Just wonderful. Uh, anyway, yeah. uh, I think we probably talked this one out. It is a very yeah. interesting documentary. Like I said, it doesn't necessarily give us uh, new insights, uh, broadly speaking, ideologically speaking, but it certainly gives us some uh, some some closer looks at foundations. And always always interesting to hear a director talk about their own work. Uh, especially right. one who isn't a jerk about it 
So um, right, right. I mean, I w- yeah, we can always give him that. Is that he is not being a jerk about his own work for sure, which is right, nice. Right, right, which is nice. It's a nice um, change of pace for sure. Yeah. Next week we were talking about last year at Marinbad, uh, the Alain Resnais, uh Rene movie, um, and uh, yeah, this week it's been Bergman Island, directed by Marie Nirbod. Near, I put a B in there for some reason. I, That's really wrong. I'm really fascinated by this. Like, okay, well, if I just yeah. keep changing it. Right, right. Uh, directed by Marie Nirod from 2006, the uh, Ingmar Bergman retrospective of his own career. Uh, yeah, just very interesting. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Otari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. You can find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My partner is John Patrick Oitari Dorgan, and you can find him at J Patrick Dorgan. Check out more of the show at lostincriterion.com or hey, give us a review on iTunes. It's nice. If you really like what you hear, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Hey, our theme music is by Jonathan Hape. Check him out at jonathanhape.com. And thanks for listening. We appreciate it.